Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Mirantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native ecosystem, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory, and I'm flying solo this week, taking a look at the LastPass breach, the revolt of cost-conscious cloud customers, the year in HTTP, and more. So let's hop right in, and what better way to start the first days of the new year than with last year's security hangover? The Thursday before Christmas weekend, quite a time to announce bad security news, password management service LastPass disclosed that a major breach had exposed, quote, basic customer information, account information, and related metadata, including company names, end user names, billing addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, and the IP addresses from which customers were accessing the LastPass service, unquote as well as encrypted password vaults. All of this comes as a follow-on to an August 2022 attack on LastPass in which the breachers compromised an employee account and gained access to information from a development environment. LastPass says user passwords are stored in a, quote, proprietary binary format, unquote, wherein certain unencrypted metadata like website URLs is associated with encrypted fields like usernames and passwords. The encrypted fields are protected by 256-bit AES encryption, and in order to decode those fields, the threat actor would need a key from a given user's master password, which is stored on LastPass users' local devices. So if you're a LastPass user, the TLDR here is that malicious actors do perhaps have a lot of personally identifying information. They don't have free and easy access to all of your passwords, but they may have an encrypted password vault and they don't have your credit card, at least as a result of this breach, since that data is stored separately. They may attempt to brute force your master password, so you may want to consider rotating critical passwords, and you absolutely should if your master password has ever been reused. On the show... Uh, last year, we talked a good deal about repatriation from the cloud and optimizing cloud spend. And of course, that was part of a wider trend, which in turn led to some lower than expected end of year earnings reports for the big public cloud providers. Now, that's gotten some interesting general media coverage in the Financial Times in a piece by Richard Waters and Dave Lee entitled Big Tech Under Pressure from Cost Conscious Customers. The write-up details how many companies have become leery of skyrocketing cloud costs, and that has led to lower than expected growth. Quote, revenue at Microsoft's Azure cloud platform grew 42% before the effects of foreign currency moves, a point below expectations, while Amazon Web Services sales grew 27%, the slowest quarterly growth rate since Amazon started breaking out cloud sales from overall revenue, unquote. For their part, both Amazon and Microsoft explained these earnings as the results of customer initiatives to optimize cloud spending. They also attempted to take a long-term view, essentially arguing that they've made it easier for customers to control their spend through various dashboard tools and offerings, which will theoretically slow growth in the near term, but foster goodwill from customers over the long term. In a comment to analysts, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella sums up the line of thinking like this, quote, in this particular period, I think we are going to optimize for long-term customer loyalty, unquote. The big cloud providers aren't putting all of their chips on customer goodwill. The Financial Times piece also nods to efforts from Amazon and Microsoft to woo customers into longer-term deals with more attractive pricing. Of course, that lock-in comes with its own world of headaches, whether you're talking compliance questions or disaster recovery or simply matching the right service to your needs. This is something I know we'll be talking a lot more about over the coming weeks and months, both here on the show and in other outlets. And uh, for anyone interested, KubeCost and Marantis uh, together are running a live workshop on Kubernetes cost reduction on April 13th. You can sign up for that if you'd like to dig deeper on controlling Kubernetes costs this year, and we'll put a link for the sign up in the chat. Uh, and podcast and YouTube listeners, if you're interested in that, you can find that link in the description. 
Moving right along, the Cloudflare blog published a nice piece reviewing the year in HTTP, and it was a big year for the protocol with a brand new specification in HTTP 3. The big idea here was to continue the work of HTTP 2 in unblocking network traffic and making the protocol as efficient as possible for the network-heavy demands of modern use cases. In this case, that largely meant replacing TCP with QUIC, QIC, which feels sort of like retiring a reliable old car that just isn't fit to task anymore. The issue here is that TCP is an in-order protocol where one packet loss can domino to block all the packets waiting in line behind it. QUIC, which originally stood for Quick UDP Internet Connection, is exactly that, UDP-based and stream multiplexing. Instead of one big orderly queue for packets, you have multiple streams leading to a given endpoint at once. That can have a higher initial bandwidth overhead, but it nets performance improvements under many circumstances because one root customer doesn't hold up the entire line. In addition to HTTP 3, other big milestones for HTTP included extensions focused on privacy, including UDP tunneling that can be used with HTTP 3 and QUIC, and work on security specifications such as digest fields and HTTP message signatures. For more information and just a treasure trove of resource links, uh, check out the blog, and we'll put that link in the description for podcast listeners. Speaking of HTTP, I happened on a nice little open source CLI tool called Hurl that some of y'all might find useful. Coming from developers out of European Telecom Orange, Hurl is a Rust-based plain text HTTP interface based on curl. It's really uh, just a pleasurably simple tool letting you run an HTTP request by typing, for example, git https www.marantis.com, and then you'll uh, run a Git request. The project posits itself as well-suited to both devs and DevOps folks, not to mention continuous integration, and you can check it out at hurl.dev. Now, we've uh, talked recently about some some nice engineering blogs, and we've got another one here uh, from eBay Engineering entitled, Why and How eBay Pivoted to Open Telemetry, which may be of interest to anyone pondering their observability strategy, especially at scale. Here's an excerpt from towards the beginning of the blog to kind of set the stage, give us the context here. eBay's observability platform, Sherlock.io, provides developers and site reliability engineers with a robust set of cloud-native offerings to observe the various applications that power the eBay ecosystem. Sherlock.io supports the three pillars of observability, metrics, logs, and traces. The platform's metric store is a clustered and sharded implementation of the Prometheus storage engine. We use the metric beat agent to scrape around 1.5 million Prometheus endpoints every minute, which are ingested into the metric stores. These endpoints, along with recording rules, result in ingesting around 40 million samples per second. The ingested samples result in 3 billion active series being stored on Prometheus. As a result, eBay's observability platform operates at an uncommonly massive scale, which brings with it new challenges. And that's the end of that uh, excerpt there. So the post goes on to break down in pretty exacting detail how and why eBay's approach to observability has evolved. First from metric scraping via daemon sets to cluster local scrapes via stateful set, then to replacing that scraper with open telemetry collector. In the uh, popular genre of a big company's engineering blogs, it's a particularly good example that gives you a lot of context and really walks you through the problem solving process procedurally. Definitely worth a read. And elsewhere in open source, the Register's Systems Approach column by Bruce Davey and Larry Peterson has a great post on Mastodon that goes deeper than the usual fare, taking a look at the Activity Hub protocol from W3C that underlies not only Mastodon, but other platforms like open source book sharing platform Bookworm, open source image sharing network PixelFed, and others. Uh, 
The piece looks at data on existing Mastodon instances and considers what that can tell us about the present and future of decentralized platforms. If you'd like to check it out, that piece is called With Mastodon, Decentralization Strikes Back. All right, so uh, as, as usual with solo episodes, this is a bit of a short and sweet one. And speaking of short and sweet, I'll leave you with a lanyap. That's a Cajun French word that basically means a little something extra, maybe a tiny delicious dessert. So the lanyap for today, uh, work targeting Linux kernel release 6.3 is ongoing right now. And according to Pharonix, proposed changes to the direct rendering manager include significant updates and improvements to the way it handles analog TVs here in 2023. This work from open source developer Maxime Ripard includes the addition of an analog TV mode property to the DRM connector user space API. So Raspberry Pi users with old school displays rejoice and props to Maxime. Also a hat tip to Christine Hall on Mastodon for that story. And that's it for today. Thanks to Sharla for the production magic this week and to Lewis and DJ for socials and video. Thanks to all of you for joining and we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>